Hello everyone, Dominic here. This episode of the History of Egypt podcast is a summary of some recent material. We've spent a few months exploring the early years of Akhenaten, previously known as Amunhotep IV. We've covered a lot of ground, but we've also had to jump around a lot in order to explore everything that the story has to offer. Akhenaten is a complex figure, and after nine episodes of narrative, some of you may be needing a refresher. The first six years of Akhenaten's reign are tumultuous, but not half as tumultuous as what is going to come after. So to get everyone on the same page, I'm going to give a quick summary of the story so far. If you feel like you're up to speed, go ahead and skip this. Otherwise, I hope this episode is useful. Thank you for listening. Now, on with the show. The man who became Akhenaten was born sometime around 1380 BCE, approximately. He was the second son of Egypt's magnificent pharaoh, the god-king Neb Ma'at-Re Amunhotep III. A man who had consolidated Egypt's imperial power and overseen a time of unprecedented royal wealth. Amunhotep III, sometimes called the Dazzling Aten, was an opulent and glamorous ruler. His younger son was something else. Akhenaten was born with the name Amunhotep, just like his father. He was not originally destined for the throne. Instead, his elder brother, a man named Tutmos, had become the visible heir to power and had started to participate in their father's regime. Unfortunately, Tutmos had never reached that peak. He died sometime around 1375 BCE, maybe. When that happened, the young boy Amunhotep became the new heir to power. Time passed and the prince grew to be a man. We don't know anything about his childhood or early maturity, only that eventually he was acknowledged as the future king of Egypt. For 18 years or so, the young Amunhotep watched his father, the dazzling pharaoh, reach splendid heights of divine authority before finally succumbing to time. The great Amunhotep III grew fat, old, and sick, and after 38 years on the throne, he passed into the realm of Osiris and left this world behind. At the age of 18, maybe a bit older, Amunhotep IV ascended to the kingship of Upper and Lower Egypt. He became the living Horus, the son of Re, the ruler of Egypt and Nubia, and master of an empire stretching into the Near East. Amunhotep inherited vast wealth, immense diplomatic prestige, and a society shaped by millennia to obedience of Pharaoh's commands. He was a fortunate man, and at the start of his reign, he had the very best resources at his disposal. Amunhotep IV began his rule on relatively good terms. His early policies were conventional. He added new monuments to Karnak Temple, small embellishments for the glory of Amun-Re and the king. He also appeared in art as a typical pharaoh, young, muscular, and pious towards the greatest of gods. The only hint that he had any kind of unique vision was his clear emphasis on worshipping Re Horakti, the sun god who emerges from the horizon at dawn. 
Amunhotep IV liked the solar deity a lot, and he made that clear in his choice of monuments and artistic representation. At the time, it may simply have been a preference, but in hindsight, it seems like a harbinger of things to come. One of Amunhotep IV's personality quirks seems to have been a concern with names and what they implied. When the king first came to power, he had to choose the public titles by which he would be known as pharaoh. Conventionally, rulers of Egypt used these names as an opportunity to identify themselves with the great gods and proclaim something about their personality or agenda. Names like Men Re Tutmose III or Neb Ma'at Re Amunhotep III gave a sense of the pharaoh's relationships with different deities. For his throne names, Amunhotep IV chose two phrases. These were Nefer Keperure and Wa Enre, which translate as Beautiful are the appearances of Rei and Rei's one and only. The first part was conventional, connecting the king with the great sun god in an ordinary way. But the second part was different. It presented Pharaoh as a special being, separate from everyone else, the only one whom Ray favoured. That was distinctive, and it gives us a hint at the king's early mindset. If nothing else, it seems that young Amunhotep IV was quite interested in names and what they said about him or the gods. Not long after he came to power, Amunhotep IV joined with the woman who would become world famous. Queen Nefertiti, or Neferet-Iti, the beautiful one has come, arrived on the scene a couple of years after the king took the throne. Where she came from, we do not know, but she was probably a daughter of some local Egyptian family, maybe one of the high-ranking wealthy clans who gathered around the court. Nefertiti, the new queen of Egypt, would become a central part of the king's regime. She would bear him many daughters, and over the course of their time together, she would gain greater and greater prominence, becoming the foremost woman of the land, and a key component of Akhenaten's religious ideals, and how they were expressed, particularly around the royal family. Nefertiti is a key figure, and while she is one of the most famous names in Egyptian history, Her political and religious role is something we will explore in great detail. Around the same time that Nefertiti appeared, the young Amunhotep IV began to publicise his love for a particular form of the sun god. If Re, Lord of Appearances, was a being of many identities, then Amunhotep clearly had a favourite. This was the form Aten, whom the king depicted as a falcon-headed deity, another identity of Rei. This god was officially named Rei Horakti, rejoicing in the horizon in his name of light which is in the Aten. This deity was nothing new. The concept of Aten had been around for over a thousand years in Egyptian religion, and Aten as an idea had gained more and more prominence in royal worship over the past few decades. Amunhotep expressed the idea of Aten in slightly more specific terms than his predecessors had done, but essentially, the god was still just another manifestation of Re, 
and Ray was capable of appearing in many forms. There was nothing new about Aten itself. So, at first, this idea, this introduction, probably wasn't seen as anything particularly out of the ordinary. Perhaps people were curious as to why Pharaoh had such an interest in this particular deity, but overall, it was relatively consistent with what had come before. However, it wasn't long before these conventional ideas began to change. Soon, the king proclaimed to the court that he would serve Aten above all. Other gods, he said, had fallen by the wayside, becoming meaningless. In the king's mind, the light of Aten, embodied by the sun which shone in the sky, was to be the focal point of royal attention. Immediately, the new program began. Amunhotep commissioned temples in the city of Thebes, massive shrines and halls dedicated to the Aten. Taking over a whole section of Karnak, Pharaoh ordered the construction of an elaborate series of monuments, beautifully designed and richly decorated. The temples to Aten had names like Gemet Pa Aten, that which the Aten has found, and they seemed to mark an immense project of solar worship in the southern capital of Egypt. At the same time that he introduced Aten, the pharaoh began to reveal a new style of art. Amana art, as we call it, was bold and distinctive, something new in the traditional style of Egyptian iconography. Amunhotep and his artists went back to the drawing board on visual representation, introducing a whole new set of proportions and features for depicting the human body. This art manifested in the reliefs of temples and massive statues, which adorned the shrines and showed Amunhotep in his new, heavily stylized form. What that style meant, and how it shapes our perception of him, is described in detail in episode 112. At the same time that he reshaped his own appearance, the king also redesigned the figure of Aten itself. Previously, the god had appeared like any Egyptian deity, a human body with an animal head, in this case a falcon surmounted by a sun disk. Now, the king reduced that symbol to its absolute minimum. In the new style, Aten now appeared as a solar disk alone. It hovered at the top of artistic scenes, and rays of light extended from the bottom of the disk, with hands holding various symbols like life or dominion to the nostrils of the king and queen. This new iconography, the sun disk, was a radical departure from what had come before, and it seems to be a purified form of the essential idea of Aten. If the king believed that other gods and their manifestations were no longer relevant, then perhaps it made sense for him to reduce the visual representation down to its absolute essentials. Aten was the sun, the light shining from the sky. It did not need a human body. It was right there, visible to your naked eyes. Metaphors and symbolic representations were no longer necessary. Now, the god was literal, distinctive, and purified. So, around the time that he changed his artistic styles, the king also revealed a new vision of Aten, one that was distinct from anything seen before.
The king's introduction of Aten and his promotion of new ideas seems to have occupied his first years in power. Little by little, Amunhotep IV established his public persona and the means by which he fulfilled his duties as pharaoh. In theory, the king was still the highest priest of the land, a loyal servant of all gods. But Amunhotep IV clearly had some strange ideas, and the little traces which survive suggest that his view of the gods as a concept left a lot to be desired. If nothing else, the king's focus on one deity above all may have seemed dangerous, neglect of the divine beings who ordered the universe. This trend reached its peak in year 5, when the king declared that he would no longer use the name Amun-hotep, meaning Amun is satisfied. Instead, he would now be called Ak-en-Aten, which meant one who is effective for the Aten. The new name signalled a total devotion to the sun god, a personal focus which connected Pharaoh with Aten and abandoned Amun, his old namesake. Such a decision must have been profoundly disconcerting to some people in Thebes. The southern capital was Amun's city, and now the pharaoh was publicly distancing himself from the great god who made the world as it is. Regnal year 5, the name change, was a key moment in Amunhotep slash Akhenaten's reign. Very quickly, events began to accelerate. The pharaoh became concerned at talk of dissent of bad things, quote-unquote, which people reported to him. We don't know what these things were, but the most likely answer is that powerful individuals, priests or officials, were speaking up against the king's policies. Argument? Confrontation? Akhenaten hated such things, and he responded by declaring that he would no longer live in the southern city. Instead, the king was moving his palace to a new location, one untouched by any other god. This was the place that we call Amana. Akhenaten declared his intention to establish a new home in the region now known as Amana, but he called this place Aket Aten, the horizon of Aten, and it would be a royal residence devoted entirely to the sun god. Pharaoh commissioned temples here, along with palaces, and a new royal tomb to be the burial place of the king, the queen, and the daughters which were now filling out the royal family. Moving to Aket Aten, Amana, was a big process, and it was almost a year after the initial proclamations that the king finally began to live full-time at the new city. Builders scurried about to erect a massive palace for the government, and a lavish home for the king himself. These monuments survive at the site, and archaeologists have been able to determine a lot about how the ancient structures were designed. I covered this in detail in episode 114, where we explored the palaces and residences of the city's central quarter. By the time Akhenaten began to live here, His religious ideas had developed quite significantly from when he first came to power. To begin with, the king had been a conventional pharaoh, he showed deference to the great gods, and while he had his favourites, he didn't express any particularly radical ideas. Year by year though, he had become more and more extreme, or at least more confident. Slowly, 
Amenhotep slash Akhenaten developed a more complete idea of his god and how this being fit into the existing pantheon. At first, Aten was simply another manifestation or appearance of Rei. He looked like Rei, his name invoked Rei, and he seemed to be just one more form of the great sun god. Over time, however, Akhenaten would come to view Aten as more and more distinct from the traditional solar deity. Having established Aket Aten as the god's new home, Pharaoh now began to explore new ways of describing the deity, new ways of celebrating him, and, eventually, new ways of asserting the god's supremacy over the land and its temples. In hindsight, we can see the first six years of Akhenaten's reign as a sort of first phase in his philosophical and religious growth. By the time he moved to Amarna, the pharaoh Akhenaten, approximately 24 years old, had developed a consistent, fully realized vision of his god. Soon, those ideas were going to expand in radical and dangerous ways. Coming up on the History of Egypt podcast, we will begin exploring phase two of Akhenaten's reign. The king, living full-time at Amarna, will expand his worship of Aten, and we will discuss the great temples which were devoted to the sun god. Akhenaten also raised up his officials, creating a class of devoted servants who built tombs in the hills of Amarna and decorated their graves with scenes of pharaoh's splendour. One of those tombs also reveals the king's ideas, as Akhenaten composed a poem, or hymn, celebrating the glory of Aten. He also developed his religious ideas more fully and explicitly than we've seen thus far. Phase 2 of Akhenaten's reign will begin in episode 116, but that will have to wait for a little while. I'm going to take a short break from the podcast, a little holiday to refresh the mental batteries, spend some time with my family, and catch up on a bit of research. With your patience, I will be back soon, revitalized and ready to give Akhenaten my full creative energy. The podcast will return on October 30th, when we will begin the story of Akhenaten's time at Amarna. First up, we will explore the king's grand religious vision. It is time to tackle, in detail, the ideas and origins of Atenism, sometimes called the world's first monotheistic religion. That will be episode 116, releasing October 30th. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. I look forward to seeing you again after my holiday. May Aten shine upon you and your days. I will see you soon. (laughs) 